Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. To the tech team. So yeah, you can thank them. So let's, uh, let's pray, all right? God, thanks for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for people who, uh, even though this is difficult, and even though every single week the people who show up to do this know it's difficult and uh, have no idea what they're going to face when we turn everything on, uh, nevertheless, God, they are here week after the week uh, trying to make this work, and thank you for them. Thank you for their diligence, for their, their technical smarts, in, in being able to make this work. God, I want to pray for your presence as we talk about your word. I pray, God, that uh, through your spirit that we'd be confident that you're speaking to us. God, if I get off track in any way, I pray that you'll guard us from being influenced the wrong way. But everything that's true, God, I thank you that you take truth. You invade our souls, our minds, our bodies, and you're in the process of transforming us. And I pray that you'll do that again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's an admissions counselor at a, at a particular university, uh, which shall remain on name largely because I, I don't know the name of the university. Uh, but the woman who told this story, this admissions counselor, um, she talked about the fact that at this prestigious university, she personally will read every single year 2,000 college applications for that university. And she said that all told, because of the... Uh, the reputation of this university, all told, that school will get about 30,000 applications every single year. And the woman who told the story said that of the 2,000 that she gets personally to read, she might actually recommend 15 out of 2,000. 15 out of 2,000. That's less than 1% of the college admissions. Um, so uh, less than 1%, 15 of the college applications she gets, she recommends. And she said that none of them, when they go to the, the admissions committee, she said none of them are ever approved I mean, unanimously by all of the people in the admissions committee except for this one time. And then she told a story. She said successful applicants of this school are always, because of the reputation, they are always the best of the best intellectually. She said all of their applications are always filled with stories about mountain climbing over the summer and being president of their high school class and starting companies even in high school and already having patents as high school students and volunteering for hundreds and hundreds of hours at you know, uh, soup kitchens and animal shelters. She said sometimes when they get letters, letters of recommendations, these, these students will be handing in letters of recommendations from Fortune 500 CEOs and U.S. congressmen and U.S. senators and high school principals. But she said this one time, this particular student, his application uh, wasn't received by her but somebody else this application had the typical good grades, not better than anybody else's, but typical good grades. He listed the typical extracurricular activities. He had the typical supporting recommendations from his high school admissions counselors, guidance counselors. In other words, she said that there was nothing that was going to set him apart from those 15, nothing that would set him apart except for the person 
who wrote his recommendation letter. It came from the high school custodian. And the admissions counselor wrote this, letters of recommendation are typically written by people who the applicant thinks will impress the school. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was supporting this student's, this student's candidacy because of this student's thoughtfulness. This young man, the custodian wrote, was the only person in the entire school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff and greeted them by name every morning. He turns off lights in empty classrooms, consistently thanks the school's hall monitors by name every morning. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at his school, regardless of position or popularity or clout. And then the admissions counselor, I have never seen a recommendation from a school custodian, but this one gave us a window into this student's life. And that student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. Now there's a proverb that says, in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, there's a proverb that says, words have the power of life and death. And I kind of want to play a what-if game this morning. Now, I know that it doesn't always make sense to play what-if because we're never actually going to know what-if. But what-if, what-if that student had not learned the names of the custodial staff? What if that student had not said, good morning, Mr. Schreiber, every time he walked into the school to that particular custodian? probably that custodian would have never really noticed him. And the most unusual recommendation would never have been written. And a very typical application would have been placed in the pile of 1,985 others. And a young man's life would have taken a very different turn. Words changed a young man's life. Words. Words have the power of life and death. So what we're doing this morning is we're actually finishing a very short three-week series on how to talk. And this morning we're going to talk about the positive power of our words because words have the power of life. So what I want to do this morning is I kind of want to play a what-if game with the man who most people think of as a very minor character in the Bible. Now, this guy's name is Barnabas, or I should actually say his name is Joseph. That's his real name. That's his given name, Joseph. Barnabas is his nickname, but we know him by his nickname. Now, because we're talking about words, I'm going to actually tell you and be honest with you that when we read what we're going to read from the book of Acts, we will never read a single word that Barnabas actually says. 
As far as we know, we do not have one single quote from Barnabas in all of Scripture. And yet, without any doubt whatsoever, the words that Barnabas spoke have changed the course of human history. His words have brought life. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ as I am, I guarantee you it is not an overstatement for me to say that the words of Barnabas have changed your life. So let me tell you about this man. The very first time that we meet Barnabas, if you're following along in your Bible here or um, at home, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. And the very first time that we meet, the, we meet this man named Barnabas, we meet him in just two short sentences in the book of Acts chapter 4. Now, Luke, Luke was the author of Acts. Luke is the writer of the gospel of Luke, and Acts is part two of his gospel. In Acts chapter 4, Luke, the author, is giving us kind of a snapshot of what is going on in the infant stage of the church. He's telling us what's happening to the Jewish Christians who are living in Jerusalem in the very earliest stages of the church. And one of the most interesting things he says is that the church did such a good job of taking each other that he actually says there was not a single poor person living in the church in the earliest stages. And then to give an example of that, how the church took care of each other, Luke says this. For example, there was Joseph, the one that the apostles had nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money to the apostles for them to distribute to the poor. Now, there's some really interesting trivia in those couple sentences. Most of it we miss, but first of all, his real name is Joseph, but you'll never read his name Joseph again. Every time you read about this guy, they use his nickname, Barnabas. Joseph is from the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Of Israel. And because he's a Levite, uh, the priests, all of the priests who worked in the temple, all of them were from the tribe of Levi. They're all Levites, all of the priests, which means that as a Levite, by birthright, Joseph could have worked by serving in the temple. However, what you and I don't know, what we're being told in this little bit of scripture, is that even though by birthright he could have worked in the temple, this guy Joseph would never be able to do so because he was born on the island of Cyprus rather than being born in Israel. Jews like Joseph, who were born elsewhere, not born in Israel, Jews like Joseph, they were called Hellenized Jews because they were born in the Greek world rather than in Israel. And those Jews who were born in Israel considered Hellenized Jews to be not quite Jewish enough. They were thought to be more Gentile than Jewish. So Joseph probably grew up speaking Greek. He probably never learned Aramaic, which was the language of those Jews born in Israel. And yet here he is, a Hellenized Jew, never thought to be quite Jewish enough. 
He holds no grudges. He's hanging on to no bitterness. And this guy decides to sell some property, bring the profits to the leaders of the church, and he said, use it wherever you see fit. And it's for actions like that. This is why Luke tells us this story. It's for actions like that that Joseph is given a nickname. The apostles start calling him Barnabas, which literally means son of encouragement. That's what the name means. It's the nickname they gave him, son of encouragement. Now, that probably sounds odd to our ears because when we give nicknames, that's not how we give a nickname. We don't call, well, sometimes we say son of a something, but that's not usually the way we use a nickname. That's not what we're normally doing. But that's the way they gave nicknames back in the day. It would be son of something. For example, quick example, there are two brothers who are disciples of Jesus, James and John, and Jesus gave them a nickname. He called them the sons of thunder. Now, we have no idea why he gave them that name. We don't know the story, but there is a pretty strong clue. There's a story in John chapter 9 where Jesus is wanting to enter a Samaritan village and preach the gospel, but the Samaritans wouldn't let Jesus enter. They kept him out. And James and John responded to that by saying, Jesus Let's just call down fire from heaven and toast these suckers. That's what they said, literally. Let's toast these guys. And it's probably episodes like that where these two guys were just always ready to pick a fight. It's probably episodes like that that made Jesus call these guys his two thunderheads because that's how they were known, the sons of thunder. Now back to Joseph whom we will always call Barnabas. For the rest of his life, because of who he was, every single time this guy shows up, people are saying, hey, here comes Mr. Happy. Here comes Mr. Encouragement. That's what they said every time they said his name, Barnabas. Here comes Mr. Encouragement. And what we know about this guy is that his words come from that kind of gracious, generous heart. The kind of a heart that says, people are in need, I'll sell some property and give the money to the church. And his words, which were always encouraging, came from that kind of a heart. And I need to tell you that that's where our words always come from. Whether your words are angry or jealous or bitter or hateful or encouraging, this is where those words come from. Always. So if you want to speak words that bring life, then make sure that your heart is alive with the Spirit of God. It's just the only way. Now, back to the story, because this is where it gets really, really interesting. If you're following along in Acts, fast forward a couple chapters and go to chapter 9 of Acts, because in chapter 9 of Acts, there is a man named Saul who 
is going to be miraculously converted and he's going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, later, Saul will stop using his Jewish name. That's what Saul is. It's his Jewish name. And he will start using his Roman name, Paul. And that's the name we know him by. Paul will become probably next to Jesus. Paul will become probably the single most influential Christian ever. But when you meet Paul in chapters 7 and 8 and 9 of Acts, you would never ever have predicted that path for him. Because when you meet Paul, known as Saul, in chapters 7 and 8, Paul is actually helping to murder the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. And following that murder of Stephen, Paul, who when we first meet him, hated Christians, Paul would help to unleash a wave of persecution and violence against the church that was devastating. The Bible says, actually, in chapter 8, speaking of Saul, the Bible talks about how Saul was going everywhere to ravage the church, going from house to house, dragging both men and women to throw them into prisons because they were followers of Jesus. And then in chapter 9, it talks about how Saul, with every breath that came out of him, he was breathing threats against the church, eager to kill the Lord's followers. Then in chapter 9, miraculously, overnight, Paul says, oops, I take that back. I don't hate you anymore. Now I'm one of you. And he goes to Jerusalem in chapter 9 and asks, may I please meet the leaders of the church? Now, question for you. If you knew Paul's history, and overnight this guy shows up and says, would you please take me to your leader? Would you be inviting Paul into your house for tea and a Bible study? you would be thinking, this is just a trick. He just wants in so he can kill us. Well, that's what they were thinking. They were all afraid of Paul. In Acts chapter 9, it talks about how none of the leaders wanted to meet with Paul. They were all terrified of him, except for one man, Mr. Encourager the son of encouragement. He went and he found Paul and he became Paul's friend, the first of the church leaders to do so. And Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles and he said, I will vouch for this man. I will stand with this man any day. And that moment changed everything. And this is what encouragers do. Encouragers do not let your past define you. 
They do not tie you to your past. Encouragers deal in the future. They deal in the hope of redemption and transformation. You know, there's a statement of Jesus. It's actually one of my most favorite statements of Jesus when it comes to dealing with human beings. This statement comes from the night that Jesus was arrested. A few hours earlier, he's dealing with his friends, with Peter. And you know how the story goes. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, before the cock crows and says good morning to us, you will have betrayed me three times. And Peter responds in typical Peter fashion. He says, no way, Lord, I would die for you. And then Jesus says the statement I love. He says, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But then there's this remarkable sentence. But I prayed for you, Peter. And when you come back, not if, but when. Jesus does not hold people to their past. And I, for one, am grateful. How about you? Jesus deals in potential, in the future, in the hope of redemption and transformation. And Barnabas has the character of Jesus in him. So when not a single other person would look at Saul and say, welcome, Barnabas does. I will stand with this man, he says. You know, this is not quite the same thing, but because baseball is getting started, there's a remarkable story in Major League Baseball. Um, when Jackie Robinson became the first black player to play in the major leagues, Jackie took a world of abuse. You and I today cannot imagine the vicious, ugly hatred that Jackie had to face every single day. His strength of character was just enormous to be able to deal with what he dealt with. He is a hero, truly. In the first year that he played in the major leagues in 1947, even his teammates, even his teammates on a team that was then known as the Brooklyn Dodgers, even his teammates were passing around a petition suggesting that they would not play with a black man. But there was one player on that team, a guy named Pee Wee Reese, who was actually the captain of the team. And Pee Wee saw the petition, refused to sign it, and because the captain wouldn't sign it, it went nowhere. On their very first road game, a game against Cincinnati, before the game actually even started, the hecklers in the stands were just vicious towards Jackie. Pee Wee Reese was playing shortstop. Jackie was playing second base. 
And when the hecklers started to get really riled up, shouting curses and other, other ugly words against this black man, Pee Wee Reese walked over to Jackie Robinson at second base. They exchanged a few words which neither of them have ever shared. And then Pee Wee put his arm around his shoulders and stood there defiantly looking at the crowd. And several sports writers have called this one of the finest moments in sports. There's a statue of this to this day in Brooklyn. And Pee Wee Reese at shortstop and Jackie Robinson at second base became one of the best defensive duos in all of sports. They're in the Hall of Fame today. They became such good friends that when Jackie Robinson died in 1972, Pee Wee Reese was one of his pallbearers. Now, this is where this story gets interesting. The way I told this story is the way we usually tell it, with Pee Wee Reese as the hero of the moment. That's not the way Pee Wee Reese tells the story. He always says, no, Jackie was the hero. I saw the courage this man had every day. And any courage I had came from him. Have you ever looked at the English word encourage? Do you know what it means literally? To give another human being courage. That's what the word means. To give courage. And that's what Jesus did with Peter. When you come back. And that's what Barnabas did for Saul. Saul, they will listen to me. Stand tall, Saul. Do not let yesterday define the rest of your life. I will stand with you, Paul, and they will hear you. Put your past away, Paul. You're a follower of Jesus now, and Jesus deals in transformation. Now, it's very interesting to me because in Acts, Paul now meets with the apostles. They agree to meet him. And then he disappears. And there's a really huge what-if moment at this point in the story. Because in the story in Acts, Paul disappears and the story shifts back to Peter. And we might never have heard from Paul again. It's a huge what if. But in Acts chapter 11, as the story continues, there's this really significant moment in the history of the church. Because up until now, the church has been almost exclusively a Jewish movement, which makes complete sense. Jesus was Jewish, a Jewish Messiah. And although in our day to say the phrase Jewish Christian sounds kind of like an oxymoron, back then it was normal. It's what everybody was, a Jewish Christian. 
But in Acts chapter 11, some unknown Jewish Christians started thinking, well, hold on a second. If the gospel is good for us, why isn't it good for them also? And for the first time in history, some Jewish Christians started deliberately sharing the gospel with Gentiles, which is us, by the way, the Gentiles. Now, the church leaders in Jerusalem started hearing about this, and they kind of got their undies in the bunch and started thinking, I'm not sure that this is kosher. So we need to send somebody to investigate what is going on in Antioch, but it needs to be somebody who is the right person, someone with grace and wisdom, someone who can handle a tough moment and not get feathers ruffled, and somebody who can respond the right way to everyone. So guess who they sent? Mr. Encourager, Barnabas. When the leaders heard what was happening, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of God's blessing, and he was filled with joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Now, what happens next? What happens next is one of those sentences that we have all read over without paying it any attention to. Because remember, Paul has left the story. Paul is sitting on the bench. The first string is playing the game. And we might never hear from Paul again. Just an incredible what-if moment in history. But Barnabas is thinking, you know, I need somebody brilliant, someone who can teach Scripture to these new Gentile believers. Who do I know who could do this with me? Scripture says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for the bench sitter to find Paul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that believers were first called Christians. Any of you ever sat on the bench? Any of you admit to sitting on the bench? Yeah, a couple. You know, I love playing football. Junior high and high school was my favorite sport to play. But after ninth grade, I spent a lot of time on the splinters on the bench. Football, it turns out, is played on emotion. Uh, And it has to be, given what you subject your body to. It's played on emotion, and it has to be. And I'm Pennsylvania Dutch. We were not there the day God was handing out emotion. At least not the football kind. My Pennsylvania Dutch emotions tend more towards the sitting on the quietly couch and shedding a tear when Davy Crockett dies in the Alamo. I have never been one to jump up and down and smack other people on the head and on the rear and be that kind of a rah-rah kind of guy. 
So in 10th grade football, when the guys were jumping up and down and smacking each other on the helmets and the butts, I was always standing in the background with my, uh, my arms crossed, rolling my eyes, thinking, good grief. What is wrong with these guys? So I rode the bench, me and Paul. And we bench riders tend to disappear. But my 10th grade coach was a guy named Buddy Glover. Buddy is, to this day, an institution in Lancaster City. Google his name and you'll be astonished, like I was, to see how often his picture appears in the paper. Buddy's a man of faith. His real name is Leon. But like Barnabas, somebody said, he's not a Leon. And they gave him the nickname Buddy. Makes you wonder a little bit about him, doesn't it? Anyway, first game of the season, 10th grade, second half. It was a close game. I was sitting on the bench, and Buddy called my name. Daniker. I didn't even know he knew my name. I got up, ran to his side. He gave me the play, smacked my butt, and I went in. Very first play, I caught a pass and scored a touchdown. Imagine. I ran to the sidelines when the extra point team came in, and Coach Glover was standing there with that smile on his face. He picked me up by the shoulder pads, spoke this close to me, and he said, Daniker. I knew you had it in you. Do you know what that sentence did? 43 years later, I can hear it and I can see that smile. Because no matter what anyone else thinks or believes or says, I know there is another human being who believes I have it in me. Imagine what kind of a world we would live in if every single 10th grade boy and girl had a person in their life who said, I believe you have it in you. Imagine. Well, Paul is no longer on the bench. He's in the game now. And in Acts chapter, six, Acts chapter 13, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, God and the church commissioned Barnabas and Paul to be the very first sent missionaries in the world. And they start traveling in their own world, sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the world would never be the same. And they took with them a young man 
probably Barnabas's cousin, a young man named John Mark. Now, for whatever reason, and we will never know the reason, for whatever reason, Mark quit. Uh, he came home. Now, otherwise, the trip went very well. Barnabas and Paul preached, people came to Jesus, churches got started. But Paul was not very happy with Mark. We will never know how not happy Paul was until a few chapters later. Because a few chapters later, if you can go one more, Missy, a few chapters later in chapter 15... Paul and Barnabas are getting ready for a second missionary trip. And Barnabas says to Paul, Paul, let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul looked at Barnabas and said, no way. We are not taking Mr. Quitter with us. Scripture actually says they had a very sharp disagreement. And the first missionary duo in history split over John Mark. Barnabas, however, was not about to give up on John Mark. And he said, John Mark, you can come with me. And he did. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, you really never find out who was wrong or who was right in a disagreement, because Scripture doesn't tend to say one was right and one was wrong. But in this occasion, you get a little bit of a hint if you follow the story, because years later, Paul, who will by now have established himself as the single most influential leader that the church world would ever see, Paul was now in prison and Paul wrote a letter to his young protege pastor named Timothy. It's his second letter. And Paul would tell Timothy, Timothy, please come and visit me as soon as you can. Only Luke is with me. And bring John Mark with you. For he's very helpful to me in my ministry. Now, I don't know if Paul ever said to Barnabas, brother, you are right, and I was wrong. But there's the proof. Encouragers believe in second chances. You know, it's kind of interesting to me to wonder what might have happened to John Mark if Barnabas had not fought for him. If Barnabas had not said, John, Mark, you get a second chance. I know you have it in you. You come with me. John, Mark might have disappeared from history, gone back to fishing. But because of Barnabas, John, Mark got a second chance. Because of Mr. Encourager, Mark stayed in the game. It's kind of fascinating because John Mark actually went by just the name Mark. And many years after his missionary endeavors were over, Mark sat down to write a book about Jesus. 
It's in our Bibles as the Gospel of Mark. And Bible scholars will tell us that the Gospel of Mark is the very first Gospel ever written. Even more significantly, they tell us that Matthew and Luke, when they sat down to write their Gospels, they used Mark as their primary source. Mark provided the basic outline of the Gospels. It's fascinating when you think about it, what happened to John Mark. Actually, it's kind of fascinating when you think about it that the two men who owe their start to Barnabas play some of the most significant history in the Bible. Suppose Barnabas had never pulled Paul off the bench. Suppose Mark had not started, stayed in the game. Without Mark, there's no Matthew. Without Mark, there's no Luke. Without Mark, there's no Acts, because Acts is the second half of Luke. Without Paul, there's no Romans. A letter that most historians will say is the single most influential letter in history, given the number of people whose lives were changed by that book and what they went on to do. In fact, if you would look at an index of your New Testament, there are 27 letters in the New Testament. Of those 27 letters, 17 of them, 17, are tied directly to Mark or Paul. Without Mark or Paul, there are 10 left. Imagine. And they call Barnabas a minor character. It is not a stretch to say that Barnabas may be the most single influential man in the entire New Testament. Mr. Encourager, imagine the what if. Imagine. I want to show you something. These, this held together pack of notes, and these two books are all from you. This is 15 years of notes from Horizon Church. On Tuesday, I went to get my first live haircut. I went back to a guy I've been going to for years. I asked him how he made out during COVID, what work was like. He told me how difficult it had been for him to not get a paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. And then he asked about me. And I said, well, I, I was fortunate. I kept working. I kept getting a paycheck. And then he said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he said, back the truck up. 
Now, he actually said that the entire conversation. I have no idea why, but he kept saying it. He said, back the truck up. You're a pastor? He said, yep. He said, back the truck up. All these years I have been cutting your hair, and I never knew. So he kept asking questions about this, asking questions, the typical questions that a person asks when they find out you're a pastor. What church and where is it? And I was telling him about it, and I ended up telling him, look, this is a church that I started in my backyard. Back the truck up, he said. He had never heard of such a thing. How does a pastor make a church, he said. And as I was telling him how I made a church, I started thinking about this. And I have to tell you the truth. Sometimes I wonder, does a pastor make a church? You did. You did this. And I am here today because of the grace of God and the power of your words. Your words. Words have the power of life. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd be at work in all of our lives, helping us to understand that our words give life. Through your spirit, Father, you are at work and you give life through the power of words. I pray, God, that you'd enable us to be human beings who give the gift of life with our words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.